You can't have the last mile without the middle mile. It is necessary, but it's certainly not sufficient. This is episode 214 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Welcome, I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Which is more likely to bring better connectivity to a larger section of the community, middle mile or last mile infrastructure investment? Both are necessary, and while there are those who believe middle-mile investment inspires private providers to deploy their own last-mile infrastructure, that theory has yet to be proven. On the other hand, last-mile connectivity depends on solid middle-mile infrastructure to connect a local community to the outside world. This week, Chris talks with someone who has expertise with both. Fletcher Kittredge, CEO of GWI, has developed projects that involve middle and last-mile connectivity. He and Chris discuss a range of issues, including where limited dollars should be focused when both last and middle mile infrastructure needs developing. Learn more about the company at gwi.net and read more about Maine's Three Ring Binder project at the muninetworks.org tag, Three Ring Binder. Now here are Chris and Fletcher Kittredge, CEO of GWI, to talk about middle mile and last mile deployment. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Fletcher Kittredge, the CEO of GWI in Maine. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Fletcher, it's great to have you back again. You've been on, uh, I think, twice before, um, maybe just once, but you and I have talked many times, and um, I think... Um, we'll call this our middle mile versus last mile show in which we talk about um, you know, some of the tensions, I think, between where to invest to spur better Internet access. Uh, to start, I thought we would ask you to just tell us a little bit about the uh, three-ring binder approach in Maine and your role within that. The three-ring binder is an 1,100-mile, uh, very high-capacity, dark-fiber, middle-mile network. Uh, that's built throughout the state of Maine. And it's it, it goes uh, primarily in rural Maine, though it touches urban Maine too. And it, it's in the form of three large fiber rings uh, that go around the state in the in the rural areas. And it's uh, it's dark fiber, which means there's no lift service. It makes it possible for carriers to provide service, but it requires carriers to do it. And uh, it's open access. You said it requires carriers to do it. I think, um, is that just to distinguish that if I owned a business selling widgets, I myself would not be able to buy dark fiber off the three-ring binder? No, not at all. Anyone can buy dark fiber off the three-ring binder. But it's just someone needs to put the equipment and light it. Right. Okay. It's an anti-monopoly network in a way. It is meant to create a platform where anyone could provide internet access in a rural area. Uh, and it's not just used by carriers. You have some businesses that are more sophisticated and have their own network department uh, use it to, to light up locations uh, between different locations. It's used a lot by hospitals, which tend to have their own networking departments. But the primary use is, is carriers who put um, their equipment on it and use it to provide middle mile services and last mile services and in some cases, but it isn't an all-in-one service. There was really nothing in rural Maine, and the first thing that was needed to lay down a foundation was the fiber itself, 
And the idea was, is if you put the fiber in, that would lower the barriers for carriers to provide access because the fiber was already there, but they had to make an investment themselves in the form of equipment. So the hope was very flexibly, it would create a public-private partnership where the, the, the private sector would it would be worth it for them to do it because the cost had been lowered so much. But at the same time, they, they, they would have to put some skin in the game. And to give you a sense of the cost, it's per strand per mile per month uh, in the neighborhood of 15 to $20 uh, per strand per mile per month, which is maybe 50% to uh, one-third of the, the rate that uh, for commercial fiber. And in many of these places, there were there was no commercial fiber available. Certainly not on a on an open access basis. Right, because I think like many states, uh, Maine, you had a situation where, to the extent that there was fiber or high capacity links, it was controlled largely by the incumbent telephone company that had historically served that area, which had been Verizon until they sold it off to Fairpoint, which was an unmitigated disaster, according to many of the consumers that I've talked to. Um, just in terms of the, the actual transfer, things have gotten a little bit better, but people are still pretty frustrated. And um, and they, that that's just to say that the incumbent then has little incentive to actually make that available to competitors. Right. There was, it was not available to competitors. So anyway, that was the the middle mile. I wanted to, I don't want to get sort of too far down that rabbit hole. So you were involved in creating that project. You helped to make sure it got stimulus funding and it's taken off. It's done very well. The main fiber company, which operates, it seems to be doing well. Um, but you also have last mile experience. So, um, you know, just as a reminder to folks who maybe haven't been listening to all the back catalog of shows, uh, what's your experience with last mile networks? We started doing last mile networks about uh, fiber networks uh, about 10 years ago, a little over that. And um, now we were, we're like many companies, we're well in the transition off the copper network to the fiber network. We provide residential and business service, primarily business service off of last mile networks. Some of those are in partnership with municipalities and uh, some of them are I, I think uh, interesting charismatic projects, but then I'm from Maine, so something like creating an island off the coast of the Maine where every has universal gigabit broadband for everyone, I think is really neat. There's you know a gigabit island is is pretty cool. Yeah, Islesboro, which uh, we have done a couple of shows on, and I've I haven't been there, but I've glimpsed it from the shore. So I, uh, I know oh, that I it's really beautiful. hope you get there sometime because it. it you know, uh, if I didn't have family on the mainland, boy, that's where I live. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a it's a it's a neat community, and it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And and there's just something really special about living on an island and the the closeness you have with different people. And uh, you know, my expectation is now that there's uh, really cheap gigabit access available to everyone that it will uh, attract young people who can have jobs where they can live anywhere and have the opportunity to raise a family in an island environment. I was delighted to be able to give my kids the experience of uh, a Maine childhood, but I think an island childhood trumps that. Well, speaking of Trump, uh, whether it's Trump or Clinton, we're going to have a new administration come next year. And one of the things that uh, people in the broadband world have been talking about is how to improve access. 
And sometime over the last year, I remember NTIA at a conference saying that they thought the smartest thing a new administration could do to spur better Internet access would be to just build a lot more middle mile access, much like we invested in on, in the BTOP program, the Broadband Technology Opportunities Program, as part of the, the stimulus investments. Um, and and I thought it's worth talking about because I, I it raises my hackles a little bit. Um, I've argued that middle mile investment is definitely necessary, although I think the the benefits from it uh, are less than uh, have been expected. And and I, my reading of it is basically that when you build a lot of middle mile, you get a little bit of last mile. Um, so I guess I'm curious if we could just start with a sort of maybe empirical look. Um, you know yeah. what what has happened with the robust middle mile you have throughout Maine? You can't have the last mile without the middle mile. So it is necessary, but it's certainly not sufficient. And to some extent, uh, that's what we've seen in Maine, uh, certainly in the, in the first few years. And it's starting to tick up now, but that thing was completed almost five years ago. And uh, we have um, a number of uh, communities that ha- have really good broadband now. And some of these are really rural, remote communities in Maine where you have uh, the best broadband in the state. And that's mostly served by, I think, historic co-ops or local companies that are really rooted in the community, right? Yeah. It, in fact, it's entirely small companies and or the independent telephone companies, which are not co-ops, but it, they're, it's all small companies. And it's either the, the independent telephone companies, which have, have really have the best, much better coverage than uh, the big incumbent. Uh, it's kind of like the bigger those independent telephone companies are, the worse their, their broadband is. And then a, a bunch of new entrants, such as Pioneer Broadband, uh, up in Arista County, Almost all, in fact, I think all of that money, however, the last mile has been done with additional government subsidies, um, mostly from the state and then from the Connect Me Authority. Uh, I'm sorry, Connect, the state is the Connect Me Authority. Then there's the federal uh, Connect America Fund. But it's, it's, a, it's a drop in the bucket. And we're getting to the point where the economics justify uh, doing it with private money, but we're not there yet. And it's just that these are rural communities with uh, that are with lack of density, and the adoption rate is pro- uh, problematic. And the dynamic that that's just something that is. Uh, there are two dynamics going on that seem potentially to make things better. One is uh, adoption rate going up. So basically, people are are less and less and less satisfied with their DSL and wireless-based broadband. Uh, all the time. I mean, it really uh, doesn't even meet DSL. Really doesn't meet, and and uh, a lot of the rural wireless doesn't meet the definition of broadband anymore. And that and the definition of broadband, the bar is constantly being raised all the time. So that's going on. So more people are willing to to switch to fiber. Um, and at the same time, the costs are coming down somewhat in providing fiber as things get more efficient. So those things are going on, but it's a slow trend. And I think with nothing else happening, it's going to be a long time till that is completed. And there's many reasons to believe that there's a bunch of communities without some level of government support, which will never have uh, sufficient networks. If you think about the power network, just fundamentally, uh, rural networks, the power network 
the road network, the the telephone network, all in rural areas, all required government support. And the economics are not changed enough by by fiber, even though it's cheaper than copper. It's still too expensive in in many in quite a few areas to do it. Uh, the, the the payback is just not there. There's going to be need, need to be government subsidy for the last mile. And so, if we accept that there's going to be government subsidy, I think the question then is is how to target it and. One of the things that I've said, and you can certainly, I'm not asking you to just go along because it's my show. I love being challenged and being told don't, where don't I'm, I'm wrong, <laughs> <laughs> um, is that when you build robust middle mile, you are lowering the operating cost of, uh, op- of, of a network. And so, you know, if you think that building middle mile is going to change the equation on the last mile, you're missing an important point, which is the barrier to investing in the last mile is is primarily a capital cost. It's not an operating cost. Now, operating cost is a barrier, um, but um, my argument has been that when you put a lot of money into last mile networks, then you create a business model for middle mile networks. But when you just build a lot of middle mile networks, you're not really creating a business model for last mile networks. What do you think about that? Uh, I'm not sure I agree. Uh, first of all, um, you know, the difference between capital and operating costs is ultimately just an accounting uh, issue. And it's money out the door either way and money that needs to be there. Uh, if you're starting up a network, operating costs in a way are capital costs because you're going to have to fund some losses in the, in the early days and you're going to need the, the capital to do that. Right. Uh, I, I really think middle mile is the foundation uh, and you you need to do it first. But uh, if you build a, a last mile network that you know, um, uh, I could uh, New Hampshire fast roads. Uh, you know, there are uh, government funded last mile networks that ended up, you know, not not working, and to a large extent not working because of the the high cost of the middle mile. I mean, that's that's one example there. And I'm sure there's others, but there's one point I really want to make is one of the dumbest things people do, and you see this constantly, is you build a middle mile network that's just a middle mile network and it's not a last mile network at the same time. That makes no sense. We have a conceptual tool dividing the network into middle and last mile, but fiber on the pole is fiber on the pole. And if you're running a middle mile network, build it so it can be used for a last mile network for all the places you pass. And you probably pass quite a few of them. Many of these rural areas, you're going to run the middle mile right down the highway, and that happens to be where all the business and most of the population, a goodly part of the population is. So you start with a big win right there. Uh, you should never build fiber and, and not build it to serve every, uh, every dwelling and building pass. The incremental cost is so low compared to the cost of going back and redoing it. And you see people redoing it and paying massively that for that all the time so i you know i think ultimately chris people are trying to to come up with a half-assed solution that ends up doing nothing there's no way that you're going to get out of having to subsidize both and it, it will be easier ultimately to deal with the middle mile problem uh, the last mile problem than the, the middle mile problem and there's there's more of a i think and more of a kind of conceptual role for the 
the government in it because the middle mile is, is massively shared infrastructure, is shared between multiple towns. I can see a day when a community can invest in itself. It's taken us a while to put together the models and tools because we're used to networks getting help from the federal government for power and telephone and roads and, and water, uh, you know, storms, uh, you know, wastewater, things like that. And the change in the world where all of a sudden, you know, the federal government doesn't help people anymore, uh, that we don't, we don't share those expenses uh, amongst ourselves is, is a new one. I think one of the challenges is that when these decisions are made in D.C. in particular, but also in the states and to a lesser extent mm-hmm. in the in the cities, I think, you mm-hmm. have people saying, well, let's come up with a solution that doesn't upset anyone. And and I think that's one of the things that you're definitely pushing back against. I mean, there's this sense, and, and I believe that one of the reasons that the stimulus program focused so much on middle mile is because it was less likely to upset incumbent operators. Nobody's axe was really being gored uh, significantly. Yeah, okay, yeah, and so you got regulatory capture going on big time. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a Yankee Republican, and um, I believe in investments that pay for themselves. I mean, you should get more out than you, you put in when society invests. And I believe that rural broadband is one of those. I mean, ultimately... You know, you, you you build these, you're either going to end up dealing with a depopulated rural area or you're going to end up supporting a, a failing economy uh, or you can do this investment and create economic growth there that spins up everything because the rural areas depend on the on the urban areas. And if it's farming or natural resources, then the urban areas depend on the rural areas, too. But, um, you know, this is an, an investment that society can make that makes economic sense. I think so. This raises an interesting question. I'm just curious to get your reaction to it, which is to say that you can actually do this investment in a very poor way, though, too, which is something that I'm afraid we're doing in Minnesota, which is to say we're going to invest in rural fiber, but only in areas that, that have nothing which is to say that if you have a a county and you have a a population center that has poor DSL, slow DSL, Mm -hmm. slow cable, we're going to invest in fiber all around that. And mm. and not allow any competent any government subsidized competition inside of that area. And our fear is is that then you actually are going to be pulling apart those main streets. Is is that a dynamic that you would foresee? I would think so. I mean, you know, the danger of saying bad wireless and bad DSL means you can't have good broadband, the broadband that's necessary for economic growth and survival of the community because. Young people don't stay where all they have is DSL. That's uh, just not good enough for to be part of today's economy and society. And if you think it's bad now, just wait for a year or two. I mean, there's so much fiber being built in urban areas. It's going to become the the uh, the economic norm, and rural areas are really going to take it in this neck. I have heard from real estate agents, the first question that people ask is, what's the broadband like here? They assume that it's got clean water and they assume that it's got power, but broadband is becoming just as important. I'm not quite sure what pointed part Main Street means, which I I think is what you said. But I think if you go to a community and say availability of of DSL and older um, 
uh, wireless broadband is means that you are not uh, eligible for uh, you know government subsidies to to build good broadband is really going to hurt a lot of places. What I had in mind when I was saying that is that you have a, a situation in which businesses and people who live uh, in those towns are thinking to themselves, if I stay here, I can pay often more for much slower, less reliable service, or I move 10 miles away into the country. It will businesses and, and people over time make the decision to move out of communities? And, and the answer is absolutely yes. And you see that all over the place. And we have a real problem in, in Maine with that that problem, and and broad. It's not the only, it's certainly not the only, and probably not the major, but it's a definite uh, component. I think as a component, the importance of it will rise over time. Just think of what it's going to be like in a few years. Most people they don't they don't even think a few years out, and you know you're just not communities are not going to be able to participate fully in the economy. It's going to be a real problem. Businesses won't come there. Business will relocate. And the same is true for individuals. And I, I think one of the things, I mean, when it comes to smaller rural cities, I think Maine's experience, not not way up in the north country, but um, mm-hmm. but when you're in sort of, you know, just the, the normal areas in between um, Portland and Augusta or Bangor and whatnot, um, you're pretty similar to our, our Minnesota, greater Minnesota cities. Yeah. And I think, you know, the idea that you would take that population that lives, the small population aggregations that you have, and then you disperse them. I mean, it's one thing if they move to Portland or to Bangor. It's another thing if they move 15 miles away and you're trying to figure out how do we build roads in this low density area? How do we build water systems? How do we take care of all that? You know, we want people to be aggregating in those areas. I I hadn't thought of that before, but it's a way of um, Maine is over from time to time over the last five decades suffered from what we call sprawl, uh, which brings a lot of those problems. And um, yes, uh, this this could be something if you don't provide good broadband in the population centers and do provide it in, in the uh, rural areas, of course, people are going to move and it's going to drive sprawl. Well, let's, let's touch on one final thing before we run out of time. Um, let's uh, let's um, talk about cherry picking, which is um, when I first started researching what happens when you build robust middle mile, I came across mm-hmm. the Alberta Supernet, uh, which was built um, almost 20 years ago now. It started being yeah. built, and they connected over 400 population centers in, in Alberta, which tells you that they're talking about a population center being anywhere like 50 people hanging out or more. Um, yeah. And and they opened it up in such a pricing mechanism that their goal was to spur last mile investment by anyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I talked with them five or six years ago, and things might have changed since then, they said that one of the big results that they saw was basically cherry picking in that people would would go to the Alberta Supernet point of presence and they'd throw up some wireless or they would do some basic investment and they would just try to get a few customers, as many as they could, and then they would Mm -hmm. be done and they wouldn't invest further, which I think is um, makes universal service even more expensive than it otherwise would be. Um, how, How do you build a middle mile to make sure that you're not encouraging that sort of cherry picking? First of all, you've hit on a really important problem. Second of all, uh, the reason it's so hard, is, uh, it's, I think it's going to be so prevalent, is it's hard to 
avoid. And I think it's just to some extent an economic reality. What is the mechanism for getting people, uh, carriers to serve people that aren't economic? You know, we tend to be future oriented here, definitely to a fault. There's some things you can do. First of all, technically, if you extend the network to serve those few customers around the middle mile, there ought to be some mechanism. Uh, and, and we're just doing it with private money because the cost is not that much, but the benefit is so great. To build it in such a way that if you build a mile off the middle mile, you plan to serve everyone that's two miles out and three miles out and five miles out. So you design your network in such a way that you expect to extend it ultimately to do universal service. So that's really important. I think the best way from a societal standpoint to deal with this is to come up with targeted subsidies that, that would vary on a much finer grain than we've had in the past um, for providing service outside of, of uh, to the people who wouldn't be cherry-picked because they're not economic. And what we're looking at and working with, there's this really good, if anyone out there who's listening is planning to or, or, or building a, a fiber system, you ought to look at a, a new company. The company isn't new. The software is new. It's called Vetro. It's put out by a company called MVP Solutions. And the idea is to use big data to figure out exactly how much it would cost to extend the network to additional locations, be it a neighborhood or an individual house or a road or something like that. And that can be updated dynamically as your network grows. I'm a computer scientist and many of the most successful computer science theories come from nature. And if you look at the way that a plant grows, the way that a tree grows, where you, you start out with a uh, a, a, a spur, a leafing spur, and that grows into a branch, and then other branches grow off of that. Uh, you could you could use software like this to build a network in the same fashion. So it grows organically. Your costs are updated as the network grows, and a location gets closer to the network. The cost of extending service it, uh, goes down, and you could target subsidies in a bitter you know a bit, bitter fashion where for a given location. 25% subsidy on the cost of construction and another needs a 50% and there may be some rural areas that need a hundred percent. And, and as the network grows, different network providers can, can bid on that. But uh, bottom line is cherry picking is shaping the world. I mean, if you think about it right now, Google and, and everybody's investing their fiber dollars in the, the wealthy dynamic uh, Southern cities and, or, a few wealthy dynamic northern cities, but everywhere else is not getting that. Over time, as the best investments become not available, people go for things that are more marginal. But it's this is this cherry picking is shaping the network we have today and will into the future. And right, well, I think to some extent that was maybe one of the goals of the Connect America Fund, although I think perhaps um, uh, outweighed by their uh, generosity to the incumbents, um, uh, you know, the, the idea of the reverse auctions. You know, there's so much regulatory capture, uh, you, you know this, and um, you just can't do something uh, without taking care of the big boys. And uh, it's, it's unfortunate, A and B, this is 
what I'm talking about is a technology solution to it, uh, really harnessing the data and being a more dynamic system. Uh, governments aren't very good at technology, and uh, um, they, they tend to be behind the curve. And so, you know, at some point, hopefully it'll get to this point, and then you got to watch out for, pay a lot of attention to the solution to make sure there isn't regulatory capture involved in that. So you end up with, you don't end up with the result you expect. But I, you know, conceptually, I think it's, I, I think it's a, a topic that, that's worth a lot of exploration. So uh, um, you should get a group of us together and we should talk about it. Great. Well, we'll keep that in mind for a future show. I like that idea. Um, coming soon to a podcast feed near you. It's, it's cherry, cherry picking is going to be big. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about uh, middle mile versus last mile. Enjoy the discussion. That was Chris and Fletcher Kittredge discussing last mile versus middle mile to expand internet access. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us with your ideas for the show at podcast at muninetworks.org. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks.org. Thank you to the group Roller Genoa for their song, Safe and Warm in Hunter's Arms, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 214 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs> <laughs>